Hello, my name is Sam. And my name is Chun. It is Saturday the 12th of December 2020. And exactly one year on since Britain woke up to a dramatically different political landscape thanks to the 2019 UK general election, this is Ballot to Talk About. Hey Sam, how's your week been? Yeah, it's been good. It's been good. Building up to Christmas now. Hmm, definitely. Well, apart from the fact that it's coming up to the end of the year, can you believe we're now doing the tenth episode of this podcast? We have reached double digits. Oh, what a good milestone that is. <laughs> Well, as mentioned right at the top, today represents exactly a year since that fateful December election, which took place, if, I, if you remember, we both voted on a very cold, very rainy, windy day. And I, I just thought I would ask you, what did you remember of that day itself leading up to before the exit poll was released? I remember reflecting a little bit on what happened in 2017 and thinking, oh, I remember some really strong anecdotal evidence that Labour was outperforming polls in 2017 and thinking, I've not seen anything of the sort today at all. And I was just waiting for the exit poll to come out to prove my fears correct. And they ended up being even worse than my worst expectations were for Labour's performance. But um yeah, I remember standing there that evening, as we've talked about last week and shared on the Twitter, that famous photo says it all, really. Well, I just want to just, I know you, 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 it's, it's quite some painful memories of that night itself for, for yourself. But when you saw Labour had a one in front of it, did you generally expect that? N- not at all. I thought that Labour was going to perform quite badly. I thought at the best end of things, they would stay where they were it was looking like whatever happened they were going to lose seats but i didn't quite expect them to lose 50 seats well more than i think closer to 60 really so it did come as a bit of a shock well one of the big takeaways of that election um as you remember was the labor's it was labor's worst performance since 1935 and that is what we'll be covering in this podcast today we'll be delving a little bit deeper into what happened uh, on that night itself and the road that led up to it and what does Labour do next in terms of rebuilding its reputation and towards possibly forming government again but before we look at the state of the Labour Party Sam what other non-UK news have you been keeping an eye on this week? Well talking about one of our podcasts we did a couple of weeks ago I've been keeping an eye on the formation of President-elect Biden's cabinet or at least the nominations to it pending approval by the Senate as we all know and there's been quite a flurry of cabinet nominees in the past week in in various positions and I think it's safe to say that they've been a bit of a surprise so far at least a surprise to us and a surprise to quite a few commentators who were expecting to see potentially some primary opponents of Biden's get a call up or congressional caucus members and bar one exception in the case of congressional caucus members with uh, Marcia Fudge being nominated to be the Housing and Urban Development Secretary. We've seen an absence of these overtly political office holder appointments and that's been quite interesting. Amongst the appointments this week, we've seen General Lloyd Austin be nominated to be the Defence Secretary, which has turned out to be quite an interesting appointment because it's looking like it might be quite a rocky road to confirmation for Lloyd Austin. Um, Because Elizabeth Warren this week came out and said that she has an issue with Lloyd Austin being a general because traditionally there should be a civilian head of the military. And in fact, this was quite a big debate when Jim Mattis was nominated to be Defence Secretary by Donald Trump back in 2017, because quite a few of the Democrats were quite vocal about their opposition to providing a military waiver to Jim Mattis to be Defence Secretary. So really, now that Lloyd Austin's nomination is coming around, a lot of those members of Congress should be having the same reservations, and at least in the case of 
Elizabeth Warren and a few others, we've seen that um, this week. So it'll be interesting to see what happens in that confirmation process and whether Lloyd Austin in the end has to rely on Republican votes, which I do think in this case on the military front might come his way. So I think he will be okay. But it'll be interesting to see just how many Democrats do not fall in line and grant this nomination a safe passage through the Senate. As well as that, we've seen Tom Vilsack nominated to take up his old post to agriculture. As I said, Marcia Fudge has been nominated to be Housing and Urban Development Secretary, which is very interesting because she's actually the only sitting member of Congress so far who has been nominated to take a post in the Biden cabinet, except Kamala Harris, who's obviously the vice president-elect. But so far, she's the only sitting member of Congress to have been nominated to take up a post. And we also saw uh, Dennis McDonough be nominated to take up the Veterans Affairs post, which both of us thought was going to go to Pete Buttigieg. And we've seen an absence of his name on this list, amongst others. And obviously, Susan Rice as well has come in as the domestic policy chief, which is very different to her previous roles in foreign affairs, which suggests to me that potentially she's trying to broaden her domestic policy reputation to potentially run for some form of office in the future. But So I thought all of these positions seem to be taken up by people who are pretty confident in taking up those positions, but at the same time are not necessarily the names we were expecting because they are very much technocratic appointments, appointments of people who have spent, with a few exceptions, spent a lifetime and a career within the civil service, within more administrative side of things. So do you think that these appointments are effective ones because of that? Or do you think they're too safe because of that? I have to say, I'm like you, I've a bit, been a bit surprised about some of the nominations coming so far. And I do wonder how these nominations will play out in a country that has gone very distrustful of Washington as an institution and as a place itself. We all knew that Biden is the ultimate Washington insider and this kind and these cabinet picks does prove it. These people have spent decades in Washington itself. And this is not the youngest cabinet by any stretch of the imagination. The, the names of the people who are in there um, I have are people who, as we mentioned before, have served for many years. I think the one thing I would say is that when Biden chose his vice presidential pick, Kamala Harris, if you in, if you recall, she was long seen as the obvious pick for vice president. There was people that came late into the game, like Karen Bass, but she was always the woman to beat. I think very much in regards to media speculation, the cabinet, it's turned out to be the less obvious choice has turned out to be the ultimate cabinet pick. I mean, I, we talked, I remember we talked a few weeks ago about whether Biden is building an Obama 3.0 cabinet or something like that. And this week, we got two indications that could potentially be the case with Tom Vasilak, the former Iowa governor, who previously served as agriculture secretary, now coming back into his old job, and Dennis McDonough, who, who was actually Obama's former chief of staff, now coming back to run the Veterans Affairs Department. The one thing that I picked up in your introduction as well is that you talked about members of Congress. I have to say, I found it really interesting now. If you look at members of Congress, it looks like the Democrats only have a majority of four in the House. And right now, not only is Marcia Fudge, but also Cedric Richmond is also going to take up a role within the Biden administration. Uh, Cedric Richmond represents a Louisiana congressional district and Marcia Fudge is from Ohio Congressional District. They are both very safe Democratic districts. You wouldn't expect normally to be having trouble in those districts. So potentially that's why. But then again, these seats take months for these seats to be filled. And I wonder whether Biden has made the calculation is that the House is led by Nancy Pelosi. And one of Pelosi's greatest strengths is the fact that she knows where her caucus lies. And she's been able to... to unite the caucus and bring and whip her caucus to get important votes through. We saw this with Obamacare, we saw this over the last two years as well. So maybe on the House front, Biden felt more confident because he knew he knows Nancy Pelosi's strength and 
corralling a caucus or getting a caucus to vote in line is definitely one of her strengths. I think on the Senate side, it's really interesting because we talked about the fact that we early on throughout in the year that a lot of ex-Biden primary opponents who actually came from the Senate, people like Cory Booker, we said a few weeks ago that we thought Amy Klobuchar was likely to become the agriculture secretary because of the fact she's from Minnesota. But actually, I was thinking it just now that Biden was vice president during a time when uh, throughout the Obama presidency. And one of the big upsets of that presidency was the Senate loss in Massachusetts, which was a, it's just, it's a safe democratic state. And, it, it took away um, their ability to avoid the filibuster. Exactly. And okay, that, that vacancy was created in a different way. That was due to the death of Teddy Kennedy. And it was won by Scott Brown, who eventually lost it in the 2012 election to Elizabeth Warren. But I wonder whether Biden saw that special election, how the Democrats could lose such a safe seat and therefore was more nervous about nominating people to the Senate in a Senate which is already going to be very difficult, which will remain in Republican control. It wasn't a 59-41 Democratic split during the time of the Massachusetts Senate special election. So I wonder whether that played into his now reluctance to nominate Senate colleagues to the post of his cabinet. What do you think, Sam? I think you're very right. Um, And I think something else that also potentially plays a role in why we've seen a lot of technocratic appointments. Now, I take your point on people being quite sceptical of Washington insiders. But I wonder if after quite a, well, shall we say, turbulent period in American political history in the Trump administration, on top of that, we have the COVID-19 pandemic going on. I wonder if people actually are about to appreciate people being put in positions which they're actually seasoned experts on rather than the sort of broad mandate that sitting congressmen and women have and whether they'd actually value people who know a lot about that area being put in that position because they want to see effective policy delivery at the moment. And maybe they, the public won't really notice it that much because, let's be honest, not none of these really are household names at, at all. And maybe that will work in their favour because it's not people who a lot of Republicans specifically have a political aversion to, so won't listen to them. And a lot of Democrats don't necessarily have um, a view on which side of the Democratic Party they sit on. It's not a partisan appointment. It's what the the executive was meant to be in originally when the founders were deciding how the branches of government were split up, which is that the executive were meant to be independent appointments to run civil service departments. They're meant to be an extension of, the civ- of what the UK would describe as the civil service. And maybe this is a is a slight return to that with a tinge of democratic partisan leaning because they were all, well, most of them were Obama administration officials as well. I take your point on people wanting, potentially in this COVID period, being wanting more experts. I mean, if you look around the world, a lot of chief health officers and chief medical officers have now become household names. Professor Chris Whitty in, mm-hmm. in the UK, everyone knows who he is. And I wonder whether Biden was looking for basically Dr. Fauci's in their respective portfolios, as in people who might be sight under the radar, but knows how to, knows his stuff, which given that they're taking over an administration, which has clearly uncooperated with the incoming one, they had to hit the ground running, particularly in a time in which it's very uncertain, there are a lot of crises going on, both health-wise and the uh, economic front as well. I think your point about the transition is is definitely interesting as well, because clearly the Trump administration is not engaging in the transition in the way that normal presidencies would. So getting somebody who has at least some sort of administrative experience or has worked in the executive before would hit the ground running even more so because they don't need to engage in the kind of formal transition that would be expected for absolute newcomers to the department because they do sort of know their way around so that that will benefit them as well 
I think one final point and um, one final question I'd like to ask, and we have to move on. Uh, there's a lot of stuff to talk about this week. Is I want to talk about Biden's choice for Health and Human Services Secretary, mm-hmm. uh, Ex- Xavier Barakava, who is, of course, will be the first Hispanic um, choice for that role. Um, very much a left field appointment. I certainly didn't expect it. I knew, I knew roughly who he was, but certainly didn't expect it. Why do you think Biden appointed him? And I just want to point out that Gavin Newsom has a lot of power now. He has to appoint only a California senator. He now has to look for a new attorney general. There are question marks on the other, Diane Feinstein's future in the Senate. So potentially you could make two appointments as well. So a lot of power vested in one governor at this stage. I'm not precisely sure where this pick came from, to be honest. My my guesses would be that he's a top administration official in California, which is the largest state, and is also a state that has been pretty effective in dealing with the COVID-19 pandemic. And as Attorney General, he was probably quite central in the policy making on that statewide, at least in the California cabinet level. But his background is very much in the law. So I found it interesting that someone like Joe Biden, who has been preaching on listening to medical officials, that we don't see a medical official or at least a scientist in this role at this time. It, that that came as quite a surprise to me. But if you look at the health team more widely that they announced when they announced Xavier Becerra's appointment, you do see a lot of medical and scientific officials around him. So I wonder whether they just needed someone who had experience in running quite an expansive department as California Attorney General, supported by people who can give him the scientific and medical advice he needs to deal with the pandemic. That's a very interesting point. And I wonder whether you think there'll be any governors, though, that will be appointed, Mm -hmm. or whether he views that on the health front that governors are obviously the leaders in their respective states. So they themselves have to look after their own state. Therefore, yeah. Biden could potentially be more um, more reluctant to pick them because it, the new the state will experience a new leadership and, ter- and, tran- and turnover as well. That could potentially be a reason why he's not picking governors at this stage. I just thought that was very interesting. He has not picked a current governor at this stage as well. Yeah, so we've still got a few posts to fill, including the National Attorney General and Secretary of State for the Interior, which will be certainly interesting to watch out for, see who gets appointed in those in the coming weeks. But what have you been keeping an eye on around the world? Well, this week I have been keeping on two events in Eastern Europe, actually. As you remember, a few podcasts ago, we covered the Lithuanian elections in quite a bit of detail. Well, I can tell you that in Greater Samionte, has been sworn in as Prime Minister on the 25th of November, and she leads a centre-right government at this stage. Um, The other two coalition partners are the Liberal Movement and the Freedom Party, both centre-centre-right parties. Um, Just a bit of profile Simeonte, she's a former finance minister from 2009 to 2012, and she's the second female Prime Minister of Lithuania. Some stats for her cabinet is that half a, almost half a cabinet are women and the party leaders of um, the liberal movement is the current speaker and the freedom party the current leader of the freedom party is the economy minister and both are female as well kind of similar to finland where all the coalition heads of the coalition parties were women this is the same thing in lithuania as well uh, Simeote is also similar to the Moldova situation we discussed last week, but in reverse, in the sense that she's the new prime minister, but was a defeated presidential candidate. If you recall, Maya Sandu was a prime minister who went to the presidency. Um, so this is the other way around. Um, the one thing I would like to point out, one thing I, I, I want to ask you a question about, is that the leader of the Homeland Union is not in greater Simeonte herself. Is the leader of the party that is the uh, that she's from is Gabriel Langbergers, and I probably butchered the pronunciation. And he's the foreign minister. Now it's very rare that a party leader that has led his party to victory is not the prime minister candidate. But we've seen in some cases that you know, like in Poland, the Kaczynskis are not, um, and they're not part of the government; they're just party leaders. 
but he is a cabinet minister itself. What are some of the thinking behind why a party leader would not want to become prime minister? And even if he wants to become or a cabinet minister itself? Yeah, I think that's very interesting. I did I wasn't I didn't clock that when I saw the um cabinet announcement. But I wonder whether it is mainly to do with because of the electoral system they have there and how the Homeland Union are now leading a government having got about twenty five percent of the vote, maybe even less, that actually appointing your prime minister becomes part of the coalition discussions and having the leader of the party leading that government makes it more difficult to forge these kind of partnerships because it feels like one party is the out and out leader of this government and the other ones are just subordinates whereas if your leader is shunted to i mean still a pretty respectable position i mean in a lot of countries foreign minister is the second in command in some respects um let think of the united states apart from the vice president the secretary of state is is the the top position to hold in the administration i wonder if maybe that was a calculation going on that if we were wanting to form a stable coalition government it should be led by somebody else possibly i think that's a very interesting thing that you could bring about as well i also wonder whether in in his case maybe she is just much more popular than the party itself Mm-hmm. So a lot of his performance, which allowed his party to come back into government, was because of the fact of her coattails, rather. Yeah. And therefore, she had to become prime minister. But that's an interesting point. The other main story that I've been following as well is that we recorded a podcast last Friday. And on Sunday, it was the Romanian elections. It saw the Social Democrats, which are basically the remnants of the old Communist Party, top the poll with around 29% shared vote. Statistics seem to suggest that it's a horrific election result because in the previous election in 2016, they got 46% shared vote. So their vote has nearly halved since. But however, this is where expectations matter. And this is going to be feeding very nicely into what we're going to discuss about Labour later. But there was very much an expectation that they would not even top the poll. So the fact that they actually did it was actually seen as quite triumphant, actually. So one of the losers, therefore, was Prime Minister Ludovic Orban's part National Liberal Party. For listeners' interest, he has no relation to Viktor Orban, who is the Hungarian Prime Minister. His National Liberal Party came second with around 25% share of the vote, which is five percentage points up from last time round. But nevertheless, the numbers were thought to be disappointing, given the turbulent term the Social Democrats led. I mean, we talked about Peru having seven prime ministers in, what, three years or something like that. Um, There will be numerous corruption scandals um, that Romania has had since the last election in 2016. And they went through three prime ministers in two years until Orban took over in 2019. Orban has subsequently resigned as prime minister, and so he's not expected to lead the government. Nevertheless, his National Liberal Party are expected to remain in government and a prime minister candidate will likely come from their party like because they have more coalition options, uh, ranging from a third-place Liberal Party that came and the Hungarian Minority Party, which traditionally support the centre-right government. And the final point I'd like to make is that the far-right has entered the Romanian parliament for the first time, securing around 10% share of the vote. They, were, they ran a campaign which you traditionally associate with far-right politics, but interestingly, they added anti-vaccination element to it. So I wonder whether this is the first election where we could see this anti-COVID thing really become one of the talking points in the future. Very interesting. But, yeah, so, so that's the Romania fallout and we, we will keep listeners posted on who the next Prime Minister is and who, and there's bound to be interesting takeaways from it as well. But one of the things that we talked about early on about Romania's Social Democrats party is the fact that they outperform expectations despite the share of the vote. And one party which over two elections have really done one one election better than expected and the other significantly worse than expected is the British Labour Party, isn't it? It is, yes. And it will be the British Labour Party that is the central discussion of today's episode. So currently, the Labour Party holds 200 MPs in the British Parliament after winning 202 seats in the 2019 election a year ago today. 
because since then, Claudia Webb has been suspended. And of course, the former leader, Jeremy Corbyn, has also been suspended from the party whip in Parliament as well. In that election a year ago, Labour lost 54 seats to the Conservatives and gained only one, which was Putney in London. And since then, Sir Keir Starmer was elected the new leader back in April with 56% of the vote and has been trying to overhaul the image of the party. And to illustrate that, there are six Corbyn shadow cabinet members who kept their job in Starmer's new cabinet and seven individuals stayed in the shadow cabinet but changed position. And one of them since has left their role. That was Rebecca Long-Bailey, who was dismissed back in June. And so of the 34 positions in that cabinet, there are only 12 currently held by people who served in the Jeremy Corbyn shadow cabinet. So it really is a changing of the guard in the Labour Party under Keir Starmer. And none in the top roles as well. Yes, none in the top roles. There was a significant overhaul in the top roles. But we are seeing at the moment that the Labour and the Conservative Party are roughly even in the opinion polls, which definitely is not what we would expect from a party who have been in opposition for 10 years. And interestingly, it wasn't until September of this year, since last year's election, that the Labour Party polled in first place in an opinion poll. And to put that into context, after the 2017 election, the Labour Party were ahead pretty much persistently for the majority for the rest of 2017, for the six months after that election. So it's it's normal for a party to get a polling bounce after losing an election, especially after being in opposition for quite some time. I think Ed Miliband was polling in the lead for the almost the entire duration of the 2010 to 2015 Parliament, sometimes by double figures. But Keir Starmer's Labour Party has not quite managed to maintain any kind of lead this time round. And that's something we'll certainly talk about later on, because we're going to be taking a deep dive into what how Labour has performed in the last year, the performance of Keir Starmer and his team in particular, as well as what the prospects for Labour going forward might be and how they solve their problems. And I think we should maybe start with the 2019 election with the Labour Party. So in that election, one of their biggest issues was that the former Red Wall completely collapsed, almost in its entirety. Now, these were Brexit heartlands, and that issue quite clearly played some kind of a role in this election. It was a centrepiece in the 2019 election. But I don't think even the most pessimistic people in the Labour Party expected it to go that wrong, did they? No, I think I I certainly didn't get a sense that it was a party heading for a election defeat of under 200, of around 200 seats. It certainly didn't feel that way. No, it certainly didn't feel that way. I think as well, uh, this is where I'm going to come back to where some of the expectations matter. I think very much in 2017, Labour when seen as not anywhere near office and that people assumed that the Conservatives would get in either of a small majority of the landslide election victory that Theresa May looked like was going to have until right to the very end. And so therefore, given that Labour were nowhere near power, they thought, oh, we like this kind of policies. We have sympathy to them. The Tories ran a bad campaign. I'll vote for them. There was not, they didn't see much loss in voting for Labour. But in 2019, they saw the two years of the hung parliament, the Brexit deadlock in parliament, the, you know, the numerous meaningful votes, if you remember. And, they also, and Labour were that much closer to power. And so therefore, um, much more of the spotlight fell on them. And therefore, the shadow cabinet performers came out. Therefore, um, the, how the policies would be costed that they were proposing came out. And I think that's where, because of the fact that the spotlight fell more strongly on them, that that surge didn't really happen. Is that they were proposing the same things, but because they were that much closer to government, they also had to, they didn't really give a convincing argument 
about how they were going to pay for it, and it wasn't very much trusted about how they were going to pay for it. And don't forget, the biggest difference was that Jeremy Corbyn was going to be was seen as much more likely to be the prime minister, or was definitely seen much more in the media's eyes of having a better shot in 2019 and 2017. And when people thought about it, they thought back to maybe some of them were insulted by his patriotism um, over his many polit- long political career, or his response to the Salisbury attack didn't like that, or his general you know, portrayal as a leader. And therefore, what might seem a novelty in 17 by 19 definitely had worn off. That, that's what I, would like, uh, I think was a large part of that difference, really. Yeah, and let's not forget one big thing that occurred within the Labour leadership between 17 and 19, particularly heightened in 2018, was the emergence of the anti-Semitism scandal within Labour that I don't think many people expected to catch fire nationally as much as it did, because what what was exposed in the Labour Party throughout the BBC Panorama documentary, as well as anecdotal evidence from former MPs, former Labour MPs, Luciana Berger, Ruth Smith, who experienced the same sort of problems, uh, Margaret Hodge and Louise Ellman. This scandal emerged within 2018 and Labour were never able, able to shed the problem. And in fact, Keir Starmer is still trying to solve the problem. Jeremy Corbyn's suspension from the Labour Party is certainly part of that. And I think the reason why he doesn't have the whip anymore, well, for starters, is because of his of the role he played in anti-Semitism and his refusal to acknowledge that. But also Keir Starmer's determination to shed this problem as his key priority in trying to make the Labour Party electorally viable once again. I mean, we just look at his first speech. He referenced uh, he wanted to tear anti-Semitism out from the roots of the Labour Party. A, suggesting that given he said in his first speech, his priority in tackling anti-Semitism. But the language he used suggested that the depth of anti-Semitism has reach far beyond and within the bowels of the Labour Party, much, much deeper than um, what is frankly acceptable to him. Um, so, so, so that is, and I think you're right, that the anti-Semitism issue played a big part in convincing a lot of people that he was potentially ungovernable. So let's talk about Keir Starmer. So he's now been leader of the Labour Party for eight months. And as we said at the beginning of this discussion, he is not particularly polling where you would expect a party who's been in opposition for 10 years to be polling, largely because it was quite a deficit to climb after the 2019 election where Labour had their worst performance in nearly 100 years. But how do we think he is doing in terms of climbing that mountain do we think he is doing as you would expect him to do as you're trying to reform a party that really had a very poor reputation in the past couple of years? Or is he underperforming where you would expect someone in that position to be? Before I give some of my thoughts, I'd like to ask you this question. is that Do you think Labour can win government in the next election? Or the Labour leadership thinks it can win government in the next election? Or do they see it as more of a two-elections process? Maybe the first election is to deny the Conservatives a majority government or get close to them in terms of number of seats in a harm parliament situation. Then the next election aim for government. Or are they trying to climb to get to government in one term? I think that's an incredibly tricky question to answer because I think it depends a lot on how the Conservative Party turns out, particularly on whether Boris Johnson leads the party, it leads the Conservative Party into the next election. But I think most people, if they wouldn't publicly acknowledge this, would privately acknowledge that this might be a two election process. And it's about restoring reputation and then becoming a serious party of government. Now, I think we're going to talk about this in a little bit, so I'll let you come in before I expand on this. But I think one thing that has maybe changed the calculus on that is the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, But as I said, I think we'll be coming on to that shortly. So I'll let you talk about Kistama a little bit before we expand. Yeah, how he's performed. I think it it was very interesting to to, to me because 
I let's take the issue of Brexit. Like he was seen as the architect of the people's vote, um, and was seen as the Remain side very much throughout the 17 to 19 Parliament. But since the election, he's taken a very much. He's aware that Labour has to do better amongst the Red Wall. So therefore, his tone on a he's he's adopted a tone. I do not really want to talk about Brexit, um, because it will it 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 will reignite that split within Labour. I I feel. Which shows to me he is serious about gaining power because he's trying to appeal to the red wall voters for them to consider them to vote Labour again. And one way he's also, I would say, that backs up my argument of him very much him seeing himself as wanting to be prime minister is the fact that he actually took the whip of Jeremy Corbyn, and before that, what took the whip of the darling of the left, Rebecca Long Bailey, and who came second in the leadership contest. Um, she he sacked her from the shadow cabinet also because of anti-Semitism as well. Um, so to me, this suggests that it's a man serious on wanting to become prime minister, and therefore having to change reputation, as you said, and portraying strength and competence, unlike the Conservatives right now during COVID. So I found that stance on Brexit as a good indicator of his seriousness of wanting to be prime minister. But I have to say, I'm not yet convinced whether he is able to rise to prime minister material yet. But then again, Boris Johnson was not always what you have seen as prime minister material, have you? Or what we traditionally seen as prime? Of what we traditionally seen as prime minister material. So I think he is on his way there, but he's not quite the finished product. That's how I would describe him as well.、Mm-hmm. If if And, you were Keir Starmer, would you be? Worried about the fact that you you haven't yet established a lead in the preferred prime minister polling, for example, or do you think that is is quite a consequence of the fact that to the wider population Boris Johnson is just a lot more well known? I think first of all, regarding the preferred prime minister state, I read a article which looked at the preferred prime minister polls in Australia, and it said that generally, if Uh, opposition leader is leading the prime minister in the preferred prime minister state. That usually means that there's going to be a change of government in the next election. So, the preferred prime minister numbers do tend to favour the incumbent. Actually,、mm-hmm. so the fact that Keir Starmer is doing roughly even suggests to me that he is doing relatively well as leader. And it was worth pointing out that Theresa May. Actually, led Jeremy Corbyn in the preferred prime minister states, largely throughout her very turbulent tenure as prime minister. So yeah, so I think that's what I would say about、uh, Keir Starmer. I think the other thing about Keir Starmer is that the opposition is not just defined by one man, which is Keir Starmer. If you look at Labour, they also had to. Gordon Brown, of course, was the other big figure within that Labour shadow cabinet team. And I look at people like Rachel Rees and Annalise Dodds, who we'll describe in a minute. And I do not think that they're quite at that level yet, of being a household well enough name.、Um, and these dots, the shadow chancellor, I would be very surprised if the majority of people knew who she was, frankly. And I wonder whether they have to up their performance or do better for Labour to get into government itself. Looking at the polls right now, I think part of it is the fact that we live in a very much more partisan era. So that means that the core conservative vote is unlikely to vote Labour and vice versa. So the fact that the, so therefore the Tories have a much higher floor than they usually have to.、Mm-hmm. But I have to admit to being surprised, to given their record over the last year since they won the election, as to how the Conservatives are still roughly polling even or been leading till September. What do you think? Why do you think the Conservatives or why has Labour failed to get even? It took up to September for them to even lead in the poll, or as the latest YouGov poll that's released as we were speaking showed the Conservatives a two-point lead. How are they still be able to be seen very much in the game than they were, than what they should be if you look at based on their last year's record? Yeah, I think partisanship plays a very large role here because there seem to be at least in the last five years, if not the last ten years. There has been a level at which, particularly the Conservative Party, has just maintained steady. So they have not really dropped below high thirties at all. 
it's just been about where the labor performance has been pitched relative to that value. And of course, they increased on that in the 2019 election, largely due to Labour's poorer performance. But the the flaw in the Conservative support seems to be in the high 30s. And we've seen that in the last year, even at times when Labour has been polling ahead. Um, but I also think that what has happened in the last six months has played a large role in that because you've seen a lot of the government. And yes, there have been quite a lot of scandals, but largely the government have been trying to navigate a global health pandemic. Rishi Sunak has grown in prominence. They've been giving out a lot of money from the Treasury in support of people. Yes, the handling of the pandemic has not been exactly as people would want it to be. But I think think people have a lot of respect for the government just because it's a difficult situation to deal with they might be quite critical of certain elements but i think the population at large outside the political world have some patience with what's going on and maybe as we move into 2021 when we put the worst of the pandemic behind us we start to come out of it we start to deal with the economic consequences of that and supposedly an imminent no deal Brexit, then we might start to see different perspectives and we might start to see a bigger shift in the polls. But if I were Keir Starmer, I would be moderately pleased with what's going on in the polls because you've managed to close down quite a substantial deficit that existed late last year. You've managed to build a reputation for relative stability which i don't think is a bad thing it might be a bit boring but it's not a it's not a bad reputation i think you're on the way to restoring the reputation of a party that was very tainted by its previous leader and you're maintaining neck and neck with a government who is dealing with an international crisis for which they get a lot of credit even when they get things wrong I think you're right that people fundamentally at the end of the day want their government to succeed, particularly when they know that, you know, no one saw COVID happening a year ago. So I think there is an element of that. And I do agree that I think Keir Starmer's performed moderately well. He's able to portray strength and competence. But Keir Starmer portraying strength and competence only one thing. I think what's more fundamental though, and this is probably much more long term, is brand labor. Because Keir Starmer is the leader of it, but I think brand labor is still quite toxic. Mm-hmm. I think the conservatives have, one reason why the conservatives could remain in power for the length that they have done and over in previous times that they've done is that they portrayed a strength of, of economic competence when they're in government and labor of economic mismanagement. How do you think labor can best change that perspective of them? As, of not only the Labour Party itself, but also in particular, its record towards handling the economy. Yeah, I think it's been quite interesting to watch the rhetoric coming from the Labour front bench over these last six months with COVID-19, because you've seen them being largely supportive of what the government are doing, which obviously it's a very special time. It's very apolitical because there's a crisis going on. But I think Labour have been quite um, clever and careful in how they have come out in support of the furlough scheme. Yes, they wanted it extended, but they didn't push it too much to look like they were overspending. They've just been critical on minor issues rather than coming out as just out and out opposition for opposition's sake. And I think they're really conscious of the image that was that existed pre-Jeremy Corbyn, but was amplified during Jeremy Corbyn of economic mismanagement and mismanagement of, well, everything. But (laughs) I think they've been working hard to change that. It's going to be a very difficult thing to change, but they might be helped by the fact that potentially tomorrow Boris Johnson is going to commit economic suicide. So we'll see how that pans out in the next 12 months. I mean, I'm not going to ask you how you voted in the Brexit referendum, but I think people can make their, draw their own conclusions from that. But I, th- I wonder whether Keir Starmer's overall strength and competence and Labour's competence is going to be tested in the next few years. Because I think we're beginning to see the rumblings of it, but 
one of the problems I think Labour had was that during the 80s, it was very hard for them to portray competence when they were fighting among themselves. Mm-hmm. And we saw this in the fact that there was a very vicious fight between Neil Kinnock, who is off from the left, but realised, I think, after the 83 landslide, and much more so after 1987, that for Labour to win, they had he had to move the party gradually towards the centre. And that was very much person non grata for people like Tony Benn and and for and many of the figures of the left at the time, Derek Hatton, who opposed it. And very much caused New Kinnick lots of problems during that time. I wonder whether now we're beginning to see that, because obviously and the biggest indicator is that Jeremy Corbyn was suspended from the Labour Party. Do you think we will see that same Labour versus Labour interfactional fight, which for which for a government which is already 10 years running could potentially prolong that for another election as well. Do you think that that is likely to happen? And B, how would Keir, how do you think Keir Starmer should solve that potential problem? Yeah, well, as you said, Labour infighting has plagued the party for the last five years and has, has basically dominated the narrative about the Labour Party for the entirety of Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, that and anti-Semitism. Um, but what's interesting about what's going on right now is it seems to be the same sort of infighting that existed during the Blair-Brown control of the Labour Party, which is a minority of people who have a very specific view of how the Labour Party should be run are shouting into the void, are screaming into the void. And it's interesting that something that is making people like Richard Berg and John McDonnell and Len McCluskey angry would have absolutely dominated the headlines for the last five years. And yet, right now, it, it's gone. The, for, the last leader of the Labour Party has been suspended from the party on the grounds of anti-Semitism, and it was in the newspapers for about three days. And most of the wider population think that it was a very reasonable thing to do, and that is the end of the matter. And it'll be interesting to see if that is what carries on, because... The Labour Party, one thing it has fought fiercely over in the last few years has been Brexit. And it'll be interesting to see if that infighting rears its head again. I think I would like to make two points. I think I agree with you regarding that maybe the 80s is not a comparison. I'm just wondering how do you prevent an 80s-style mm-hmm. open civil war? Yeah. And maybe I want to know what, how you think he could do it um, in, in the follow-up question to that. I, I found your comparison of the Blair Brown years very interesting. I think there definitely are some characterization. If you remember, there was this awkward squad within the Labour Party then, and it was people like Dennis Skinner sitting on the right in the front of the government front benches as well when Labour were in government, you know, being very much a thorn in Tony Blair's side. And if you there's footage of Tony Blair's last Prime Minister's questions and one of the most critical voices of the Blair administration over his invasion of Iraq was a man called Jeremy Corbyn. Wonder what he went he did post that criticism of Tony Blair. I think on when we characterize the left within the Labour Party, I think we have to make a distinction between what I would call the practical left, and I would classify people like Angela Rayner mm-hmm. and into this category. People who are who are left of very quite quite the left of the Labour Party, but are realistic enough to work with others to get to their aim or be modify their views or certainly present it better in a way that could be more appealing to British people rather than the hard left, which is people like Richard Bergen, Diane Abbott, who are your way or the highway kind of politician mm-hmm. within Labour. Well, I think. In answer to your follow-up question and a comment on what you just said, one thing Keir Starmer needs to continue doing, which I think, in my opinion, he's done quite effectively in the last seven months, is make it very clear that he is not abandoning the some of the ideological elements of the last administration, keep people on board who are willing to work with him and move forward in that vein, where you're not you're not alienating half of the party you're trying you're genuinely trying to embrace the fact that the labor party is a large broad church and you're going to have people of all wings serving the last jeremy corbyn shadow cabinet explicitly did not do that 
largely because a lot of people refused to serve under his shadow cabinet. But also, I don't think they were ever invited. But Starmer has retained elements of the last Labour leadership and has reached out beyond that. And that's the way you're going to avoid infighting if you can keep the reasonable people from every wing of the party on board. I think it's very interesting. I, I actually would disagree with your characterization of the Corbyn Shadow Cabinet. I think he did try when he was first elected leader. He was very aware oh, when that he lots was of first parliamentary... elected. Yeah, because uh, yeah. Andy Burnham was served on that front bench. Angela Eagle, if you yeah. remember, was Shadow First Hillary Secretary Hillary Benn. States. Hillary yeah. Benn, people like that. So I think I will characterize it as. I mean, the post 2017. That's, yes, I, yeah. I, I think that's a better characterization of it rather than describing. I think he did try at the start. But then again, this is the characteristics most leaders do. They try at the start to accommodate what Margaret Thatcher's first cabinet, you know, had a lot of what she later describes as wet. People like Ian Gilmore, who she later sacked, and she adopted a very much more ideological position. Mm-hmm. So what Keir Starmer has to do is probably going against the grain of what most leaders did in order to remain in power, isn't it? He's dealing with a very tricky and delicate situation because you are trying to hold together a party that has been woefully divided for the last five years to their electoral expense, as well as trying to reform the image of the party beyond the party walls to try and win an election, which is the main reason why I think more likely this is going to be a two-election process because you've got to try to solve your problems you have at home before you can solve your problems beyond those walls. Well, the one thing we know about politics is that it's a team sport. And the last big thing I want to talk about is the performance of the Labour shadow cabinet. And we've hinted about this fact that some members need to increase their profile, such as Annalise Dodds. How do you think she's performed so far as shadow chancellor? She's had, well, I would say two misfortunes. One, going going in as a shadow chancellor relatively new into the role in one of the hardest jobs in opposition or in government in a time which is totally unprecedented with lots of uncertainty, um, which has naturally made her job more difficult. But also she's going up against one of the more competent, most competent, I would say, and most media savvy politician in this conservative government and potential next prime minister, Rishi Sunak. So how do you think she's performed? I think she is an effective operator an effect, and an effective person to have around the shadow cabinet table. And one thing I will say is I think the Labour Party messaging on economic issues has been quite effective and I think is closer to where the public are than the messaging coming from the government. So there's a tick. But I'm not sure her media performances have been effective enough and I'm not sure she's trying to build a national reputation that you really need especially when you are in opposition in a time when the government gets a lot of airtime because there's a crisis going on I think you really need to be a little bit more assertive on that front but having said that I think she is an effective economist and I think she would make a pretty outstanding chancellor but I'm not sure at the moment she's breaking through as much as the party needs her to. Do you think Rachel Reeves could make a better fit, actually, for the role of Shadow Chancellor, actually? Because I think her media preference is much more powerful. She's certainly a much better performer in Parliament. And, you know, chancellors are often, you know, they are essentially the de facto deputy, apart from the actual deputy leader. And... Large and Labour's big problem is, as we mentioned a few times, trying to sell a message of economic competence. Now, not only is that proposing policies, but also is communicating how you do that. And therefore, do you might think that Rachel Reeves, as a former economist at the Bank of England, she's also chaired Select Committee, the Business Select Committee as well, could pose a better fit than Annalise Dodds, who might be better in a backroom kind of cabinet office roles. Yeah, I think, well, firstly, I think Rachel Reeves has been one of the most effective performers in the Starmer Shadow Cabinet so far. But I think maybe one of the reasons she didn't get the Shadow Chancellor role is because she was very largely associated with 
She well, she served in the shadow cabinet for pretty much the entire duration of Ed Miliband's leadership of the Labour Party, and has been quite a prominent advocate of the People's Vote campaign, quite a prominent campaigner on that front. And I think she would have been quite a risky appointment in the early days of Keir Starmer's leadership, because it it would seem to some people that this was an indication of where the party wanted to go which i think would have displeased quite a few members of the party but maybe she would fit that role better right now potentially in terms of what the role needs to achieve beyond just drafting economic policy but it will definitely she's definitely a name i would keep my eyes on if there were to be an imminent shadow cabinet reshuffle I think the other quick point... Which, for the record, I don't think there will be. (laughs) Well, certainly not as quick as the government's one, I would say. I think the two things I'd like to ask, and we're fast running out of time, is um, the first question is on Lisa Nandy. I have to admit, she was probably the most impressive candidate running for the Labour Party. I thought she was very honest. And she, of course, is the MP for Wigan. She is from the Red Wall. I was a bit surprised she was given the Shadow Foreign Secretary role which I know in government, Foreign Secretary is important. We talked about the Secretary of State being very important and Foreign Ministers being important. But it isn't a role that's particularly important in opposition, particularly when this is an area in which, on many areas, the government and opposition have quite a lot of agreement to. Okay, minus Brexit and certainly no-deal Brexit. So do you think she's potentially in the wrong portfolio? And given her background, her very impressive media personality, whether she'd be more suited to a domestic-facing portfolio in the future? I think she potentially could, because I think she's a very intellectual member of the Starmer team, and I think she's an effective performer, and she's definitely an asset for the party. I'm not sure she necessarily suits the Shadow Foreign Brief. I agree with you on that front. But at the same time, because the Shadow Foreign Secretary role is not as important policy-wise to the opposition, one thing she has been able to do quite effectively, I think, is represent the Labour Party on the Sunday morning programmes, on Peston, those sort of things, where she's quite an effective communicator, where she doesn't necessarily need to go on and talk about her brief because the Foreign Secretary will come and do that and they largely agree on these things. But she's just able to talk truth about where the Labour Party is and is in a prominent position enough to be invited to do that. And also, I don't think I would put her as Shadow Home Secretary because I think Nick Thomas-Simmons is doing quite a good job in that department. He's another person I think is performing quite well in Starmer's team. And I don't know where you would necessarily put her other than maybe housing or communities and local government, which wouldn't get the kind of prominence that shadow foreign secretary would give you interesting I, I my thought was that maybe she and nick thomas simmons could swap portfolios between each other i think largely he was appointed home secretary shadow home secretary was because labor he was security minister under corbyn was actually well liked by the security establishment mm-hmm. because he was not seen as diane abbott i and i think he and i think you're right he's done a relatively good job on this and like and as we say, you know, in a time in which, you know, the government announcements would dominate media coverage, it's even harder for an opposition spokesperson mm-hmm. to gain media tr- media coverage. I was just reminded that John Healy is the shadow defense secretary, because I haven't heard from him in a very long time until the defense spending review came out. Haven't no, you? No, and haven't even you? even Jonathan Ashworth, the shadow health secretary, you don't hear much from him at all. And you seem to be hearing from Matt Hancock every day. <laughs> unfortunately. But only if you're politically engaged do you see Jonathan Ashworth performing in the Commons. But the wider public probably haven't seen much of him. All right, fair enough. Well, the rebuild for Labour, we said, would take two elections. Do you think that the Shadow Cabinet and Keir Starmer can make it in, in this shape to the next election and beyond? Well, that is that is the killer question, really. Um, I've, I have a feeling that the Shadow Cabinet may change its appearance slightly in the build-up to the election, especially if they're not gaining the traction they need to be gaining in the polls. But I think we could be seeing something that looks like this shadow cabinet moving into Downing Street in five years' time um, if they can get their polling numbers a bit better. But I think they're definitely on the right track. And if I were them, 
I'd be quite pleased. And they need to solve the Scotland issue, which we will talk about in a future podcast. Sam and I did the same. We're not going to mention Scotland because Labour has to solve a Scotland problem, which we're going to discuss in more detail in a few weeks' time. We are indeed. I think one final point I would like to say is that Labour traditionally doesn't win government very often. If you look since World War II, we've had Clement Attlee, Harold Wilson, Tony Blair. Those are only three leaders who have led their party from opposition to government. Keir Starmer's task is very difficult, isn't he? Why do you think Labour and wider social democratic parties find it more difficult to gain government? Generally, they tend to be broader churches in terms of their inner ideological views so there tends to be quite a lot of infighting um, which the Labour Party is definitely no stranger to and generally centre-right parties tend to be more popular on the economy their positions tend to be more popular in the wider population so if social democratic parties are trying to win elections they need to win it on something else and at least recently, the economy has dominated the electoral cycle. So it's been very difficult to over to, to combat that. Uh, and that will be part of Keir Starmer's task going forwards, because I think we can both agree that the economy will be a central focus point in the UK and around the world entirely for the next, for, well, for the foreseeable future. Well, we're given, we're given our analysis. Let's see whether Labour can start working again. Yes, so that is it for the latest episode of Ballot to Talk About. Do join us again next time when we will be talking all things Brexit as the end of the transition period approaches. And we'll bring you up to date on the world of politics and elections around the globe as usual. So you can follow us on Twitter at at ballot underscore talk and you can leave us a rating, review or tell your friends about us. Until then, see you soon. I'll see you soon, Sam.